Oh God, that's why you raised this university up a hundred years ago. With a saving message about a sacrifice that has already made sure the salvation of an entire race of intelligent beings. We've seen the cross in our minds. We have, we have sensed the saving power of our Master in our midst. For a few lingering moments as we go to the Word, please, call us to be the ambassadors of this good news to our dying civilization. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Did you know that Karl Marx, one of the intellectual founders of communism, and John Nevins Andrews, one of the intellectual founders of Adventism, were contemporaries? In fact, both men died in the same year, 1883. Both their wives, with whom they were deeply in love, preceded them in death. Both men lived and died impoverished. Marx in London, England, Andrews in Basel, Switzerland. And yet both these men who never met have left behind a corpus of writings that unquestionably have left an indelible fingerprint upon the movements they helped to found. This morning uh, on Homecoming Sabbath, it seems well that we go to those corpus of writings and withdraw a sentence from each. Juxtapose those two sentences together and consider their summons, a radical summons for this university named after one of those men. For those of you watching on television, I'll just give you a hint, we are not Marx University. Let's go to Karl Marx first. Let's put him on the screen. Karl Marx wrote these words. The philosophers hitherto have only interpreted the world, the thing, however, the thing, however, is to change it. I remember the first time I came across those words, there was something in that sentence that deeply resonated inside. With you, I don't, I don't embrace or espouse communism, but what Marx writes about the world, we don't need another interpretation about the world. The critical mass, the critical need today is to change this world. And surely all of us who are somehow trying to keep abreast of this unfolding saga and tragedy in the Middle East. The undeclared war between Israel and Palestine. Surely, surely, life on this planet today is summoning us not to interpret human existence, but we live in a world that desperately needs to be changed. Mark was right. Let the philosophers interpret the world. The need, however, is to change it. Now, the question is, how shall we change it? Introduce now the words, John Nevins Andrews, he answers the question we raise. His words on the screen, J.N. Andrews, I know of but one way. You want to change this world? I know of but one way. Find a field of labor. Ask God to help. Take off your coat and pitch in to the work. Bless his soul. 
You don't have to go to the Middle East for something like this. You can stay here in the Midwest. I know of one way Andrews writes to his spiritual descendants. And that is, wherever you go, find a need. Wherever you're going as an alumnus, when you go home from this place, wherever you go as a student, when you are graduated from this institution, find a need somewhere in the world. Ask God to help you. Take off your coat, roll up your sleeves, plunge into the world, and pitch into the work because the world desperately needs today not a new interpretation. The world needs to be changed. And I say, you go, John. What do you say? And to prove this point, the widower, John Nevins Andrews, with his two young children, Mary and Charles, set out to change the world by sailing across the Atlantic to Europe. And as we all know, they became the first missionaries to the fledgling Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now look, Karl Marx, John Evans Andrews, two very different men with two very disparate worldviews, but who shared at least this, a solitary passion and mission to change the world. And I wonder how it is with those of us who are the intellectual and faith descendants of this Andrews named John at this university named Andrews. A solitary passion and mission to change the world. Is that what drives the likes of you and me? Clearly, it was the passion and mission of Jesus. I need you to open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 4. I don't know how many times I've read through chapter 4 as you have and missed over and over again the profound choice that Jesus makes here in Matthew chapter 4. Tucked away, it's a very uh, a seemingly obscure narrative moment in Christ's life. And yet the other morning, as I am moving through Matthew and I come across this story, I, I notice for the first time there is a choice. I had never seen the choice before. Intentional choice Christ makes in this brief vignette. And yet as I have brooded over this choice, as I have pondered what it means for a third millennial uh, a survival in ministry, it occurs to me, ladies and gentlemen, that in the radical choice Christ makes, there is the fire that can ignite Andrews University for a third millennial journey. Now, look, we're family today, and you know how it works. Let's be honest, whether you are a college student trying to make ends meet or a marriage and family struggling over finances or an institution grappling with monetary needs, you and I know sometimes when budgets have to be balanced and finances have to be figured and costs have to be cut, the clamor of maintenance can drown out the call to mission. We can become so preoccupied in simply surviving. Interestingly enough, Jesus faced that same clamor and the same choice. I want to read it with you. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. And I'm going to, I'd like to read this from the New Living Translation. Once in a while, I pull this out uh, into the pulpit. Something fresh with, with the old, old story. And so this will be the New Living. That's what you'll have on the screen. You read along in whatever you've brought. Matthew 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. Now, what's escaped me every other time I've read this opening uh, uh, salvo to the short narrative is the choice, the provocative choice, and I suppose it's the New Living Translation that, that brings that choice to the forefront. 
The choice Jesus makes. I never noted the choice before, but if you note in verse 12, whatever the translation you have, it is clear that prior to going to Galilee, Jesus has been at work and in ministry in Judea. And in fact, he's been living and working around Jerusalem. If we put the composite gospel accounts together, they indicate that Jesus has actually spent a year in Judea and Jerusalem. And of course, we all know that Jerusalem is the capital of the Jews. It is the center of Judaism. Jerusalem boasted of more saved people per square inch than any other place on earth. Jerusalem had uh, in its, in its uh, liturgical soul the holy temple, the heart of Judaism. Jerusalem with its glorious architecture, choirs, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, schools for every child you have, the theological seminaries in Jerusalem, the brightest minds of the church are in Jerusalem, why would anybody choose to leave that setting where life is ideal and surely it is perfect? And yet it is clear Jesus chooses to walk away from it all. He could have had it all. He could have had the global recognition. He could have had the national acclaim. If he, why, why in the world, Master, would you leave such a comfortable and safe community of your own people? Once I caught the choice, and I hadn't seen it over and over, I had missed it. Once I caught the choice, the compelling reason then became clear. Let's read on the next uh, three verses. Verse 13. So he's le he, he, he leaves, leaves Judea. In fact, let's pick it up in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and he returned to Galilee. But instead of going to Nazareth, his hometown... He went to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled, verse 14, Isaiah's prophecy, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. Why does Jesus leave the comforts and, and notoriety of Jerusalem and Judea? The reason is simple. Why didn't I see the reason before? Now, I got a, I got a piece from the General Conference the other day. It's from uh, their Office of Global Missions. A young man named uh, Gary Krause. He tells a story, and I thought, man, the GC is spending all this money to get this corny story out to the church. What is the point of it? It was only when I read the story the second time that suddenly it clicked. It has to be Jesus' reason. The story is about two men who are under a street lamp at night searching for a watch. One of them is lost. They're down on their hands and knees. They've covered the pavement every square inch under the light. They still haven't found the light. And the friend who had joined the lost seeker says, Are you sure you lost your watch here? And the friend said, Nope. He said, What do you mean you're not sure? Where did you lose your watch? He pointed out into the darkness, about 20 yards out there. And the friend is incredulous. Then why in the world have we spent our time looking for the watch here? To which the man replied, because the light is better. <laughs> I told you it was corny. But I read it the second time. And I want to put the words up on the, on the screen for you. I read it the second time and I got to thinking to myself, wait a minute, Dwight. Is that, is that the reason why so many of us as Christians choose the places where we live? 
Is that why we have chosen the places where we work? Is that why? Oh, I'm not going to hang around that group. I'm going to recreate only with this bunch here. Have we made our life choices? Have we invested our energies the way we have simply because we're moved by the same conviction? This is where the light is better. Has the church invested its efforts year after year after year where the light is better? Not Jesus. He leaves the comfort. He leaves the security of the community of Jerusalem and Judea. Why? Because in Galilee, we just read it, in Galilee, there were more lost people per square inch than anywhere else in Palestine. That's why. He went from where the light was better. He went to where there was no light at all. His mission, crystal clear. We remember the words, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Nothing else has mattered more to the heart of God than lost people. And so what does Jesus do in a radical paradigm shift? Jesus moves his messianic mission from religious Jerusalem and churchy Judea to godless Capernaum and pagan Galilee. Come to think of it, if he, if he had moved today, he would have moved to the heart of the United States of America. Because I remind you, ladies and gentlemen, verse 16, in the whatever the translation you have just read, verse 16 is a description of our postmodern, post-Christian, and essentially pagan, secular West, the United States included. Verse 16 again, and the people have sat in darkness. They've seen a great light. The people who live in the land where death casts its shadow, post-September 11, this nation has been utterly preoccupied with the reality of uncertain death. The people who've lived in the land where death casts its shadow, for them, a light has shined. You know, I, 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 I brood over this and I wonder out loud, could it be that in this dramatic shift of his messianic mission, at his first coming, that Jesus is somehow teletyping to those of us living close to his second coming, somehow suggesting that in his shift to Galilee, the time has come for us in our postmodern mission to focus on those who live in darkness, those who live with no light, no faith, no hope, those who live in the land of the shadow of death. Just like the woman I met last week in the jacuzzi. I figured that would give you, get your attention. And so uh, let me quickly add that I was not alone in that jacuzzi. Pastor Skip was with me. And uh, I figure, ladies and gentlemen, whenever you go to a jacuzzi, it's always good to have the pastor for evangelism in the jacuzzi with you. And so he was there. Actually, last week we were out in Faith for Today. We were, in, we were in Los Angeles working with our Faith for Today leadership team, strategizing for our new national telecast and ministry, The Evidence. We spent the whole day in meetings. Our bodies are still three hours later on East Coast time. And so we decided to dip into the uh, hotel hot tub before retiring. A woman and two other men joined us in that hot tub. And it wasn't long until we found out that, in fact, they were insurance claim adjusters attending some big seminar in L.A. In fact, they were presenters in the, uh, in the seminar. And so they, uh, the, the woman spoke. She said, what do you guys do? Now, I decided not to tell her that we were both pastors, since in our emphasis this winter and spring, we've been talking about becoming contagious Christians and contagious Adventists. And 
wanting to come up with cheerful, buoyant, winsome ways to share your faith. And I just, it didn't seem to be winsome to say that you're sitting in a hot tub with two preachers. And so I didn't just say, I just didn't say anything about that. I, 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 I instead told her, listen, we're here in L.A. because we're producing a new television program. And I told the truth. That's true. I told her that. She said, oh, really? How neat. What, what is it about? I said, well, let, let me just tell you something. This, this program is based on a fascinating premise. We are finding people who actually believe in God, and we are asking them to share with us the evidence for why they've come to that belief. Oh, wow. She said, that is neat. I'd love to see that program. Now, I, I don't believe in God, you understand, but I would love to see that program. And so I'm thinking, well, we've been talking, you know, Brian's been up front every Sabbath and I've been preaching on the contagious Adventists and we've been talking about seizing the moment. So I said, OK, spirit, I need something to get this, keep this conversation going just like that. I believe it was from the spirit. I said, hey, wait a minute. You're, you're in the insurance industry. Don't your policy say something about acts of God? And she said, well, yeah, and she said, they do, as a matter of fact. But she said, let me tell you about that. Well, you know, we only use that kind of language to describe acts of nature or life that are uncaused by humans. That's what we mean when we say acts of God. She said, like what happened to us the other day. And she proceeds to go into a story. She said, one of our, our uh, clients, he followed all the regulations. He built the fence high enough. He put the gate on. It was locked. It surrounded his pool. While he was gone, uh, the grandson of the next-door neighbors came to visit them. And while nobody was looking, the boy slipped across the yard, climbed the fence, and drowned in our client's pool. She says, now I want to tell you something. That is an act of God. Because you see, it's, not, it's an uncaused human tragedy. So I had to go, she said, I had to go and tell the poor grieving grandparents that, that our policy cannot cover that. So she said, I sat in the living room with those, with those heartbroken grandparents. And as they wept, she said, I wept too. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, atheists have empathy. This is good. Good. You go, girl. What's wrong with that? Nothing. And in fact, she said, after I had cried with them, when we came to the end of the visit, she said, I had prayer with them. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This woman just told me she doesn't believe in God. There is a, there is a huge discrepancy. I said, so I said, I'm not letting her get by with this. I said, excuse me, ma'am, but you said just a moment ago that, that you don't believe in God. How, who are you praying to? She said, well, it's true. She said, I don't believe in God. But she said, I knew that if I spoke the words, it would make them feel better. So I went ahead and I prayed with them. Ladies and gentlemen, exhibit A, classic, postmodern. You want to talk about post-Christian? No religion at all. Here's a woman who doesn't believe in prayer. She doesn't believe in God. But she goes through the act of Christian praying just to be nice and help somebody feel better. I want to tell you something. That woman is not alone in America. Her numbers are growing. March 7, USA Today. I couldn't believe it when I saw the headline, Datelined out of Seattle, where my brother is is a plant in a church. March 7, USA Today. The number now of Americans, according to a survey in 2001, the number of Americans now who claim to have no God, no religion, no nothing about faith, the number now is 29.4 million Americans. 
8% of our population back in 1991. They are now 14% of our population. They are growing faster than Christianity. Just like the people of Galilee who sat in darkness, who lived in the region in shadow of death. They have no faith. They have no hope. They have no light. They go through the motions. And oh, by the way, postmoderns are eclectic. You know what eclectic means. They'll take a little bit here. They'll take a little bit here and here and here. And they'll, they'll blend it, mix it all together. And then they will call it, this is my life philosophy. No God or a hundred gods. It doesn't matter to them as long as they have something. Do you know what postmoderns feel about you and me and about religion, organized religion that we and Andrews University are a part of? Listen to this. Maureen Dowd, well-known columnist here in the United States, uh, in the New York Times, two weeks ago tomorrow, the New York Times, the Sunday paper, New York Times, Maureen Dowd wrote a piece entitled Sacred Cruelties. It describes the postmodern post-Christian response to religion. And I thought you ought to see this. You want to know how they, what they think about organized religion? This is the Galilee, all right? Let's put the words up on the screen. Maureen Dowd. Not long, she's writing now, not long after September 11, somebody scribbled these chillingly profound words on a wall in Washington. Dear God, save us from the people who believe in you. The atrocities and brutalities and repressions committed in the name of God fill us with a greater need for God or some spiritual solace. Dark days in New York, Washington, Central Asia, the Middle East, the Archdiocese of Boston make us look inward. But as the need for spirituality is growing, the credibility of various faiths is waning. Instead of addressing itself to the angels of our nature, religion seems to be inspiring the demons of our nature. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, a postmodern, post-Christian worldview that is unapologetically skeptical about any religion at all, yours and mine included. If this is what religion does, you can have it, post-Christians have declared. Or as Maureen Dowd ended her column, these last two lines of her column, just when we wish to flee to religion for sanctuary, we find ourselves fleeing from religion for sanctuary. As my friend Leon Weisseltier once wrote, metaphysician, heal thyself. Meaning, religions, get your act together. Mm, such is the view of postmodern, post-Christian, and essentially pagan America and pagan West. That is the view of the world in which we now live. But what Matthew 4, and this, this is what to me is so provocative. What Matthew 4 is telling us is that this is the very world, this is the very culture that Jesus shifted his messianic mission to reach. He had been where the light is better. And he said, I'm tired of hanging around where the light is better. Let me go to where the light is awful. Let me go into the dark. He shifts his mission and he makes the intentional choice. I must go to a people who sit in darkness. Verse 16, read it again. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the light that penetrated into that, I guess it would be pre-Christian, pre-modern, pagan darkness? What is the light? 
Uh, the light. It obviously is the light of Jesus, the Christ himself. Look at verse 17. Matthew sums up Jesus' postmodern mission and message. Verse 17, last verse. And then, from then on, Jesus began to preach. Turn from your sins and turn to God. Because the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus says, I want to tell you people out here in the darkness, you don't understand, but God is much nearer to you than you could possibly know right now. Woman in the jacuzzi, I want to tell you something. I don't know what you were taught about God. I don't know what you caught about God in your childhood. But I want to tell you something. God is nearer to you, much nearer than you can possibly understand right now. Turn from your sins. Turn to God. He's not somebody to be afraid of. I'm telling you the truth. He is not somebody to be afraid of. He's someone to be a friend of. You don't have to run from Him. You can run to Him. Because the kingdom of heaven is near. You know, I wonder what picture of God I paint where I go. And I wonder what picture of God you paint where you go. I mean, the children, the spiritual faith and intellectual descendants of John Nevins Andrews. What's the picture of God the world gets where we go? And could it be that Andrews University could not be called to any higher mission in the third millennium than to be the place in the heart of our community of faith that proactively and strategically chooses to embrace as its third millennial mission Devising a post-Christian strategy for evangelism, a post-modern mission to reach the secular West. I tell you what, it's not coming from anywhere right now. What if this, you know, you think about the synergy. I mean, we have the theological seminary. We have the school of business. We have the school of technology. We have arts and sciences. We have the graduate school. We have the school of education. The, some of the greatest, the, the most creative minds within our community of faith. If we could just bring that synergy together. Add 3,000 young adults who could be ignited for this postmodern mission of Christ. Why not? What a mission for the third millennium. You say, why are you talking to us? We're the alumni. Well, I tell you what. If that became the mission of Andrews University, it would need the financial backing of its alumni dreamers in order to implement that, that vision. The vision of the Lord Jesus who said, you know, I've spent all my time where the light is better. I must now go to where there is no light at all. Postmodern, post-Christian, essentially pagan America. What is the picture of God we paint? I tell you what, I love the picture of God that Jesus paints. I want to put these words on the screen because Dr. Luke, the physician, his gospel is focused more than any of the gospels on Jesus' ministry up where, up where there was only darkness, where there was no light. Luke is enamored because he's writing his gospel to those who once lived without light, Gentile believers. And so he concentrates on, what, on Jesus' MO, his modus operandi. And I love these words in uh, Luke chapter 15. This is the preamble, as you, as you know, to the three stories, lost sheep, lost coin, lost boy. Okay, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. Okay, now what's his strategy? And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. You know what, ladies and gentlemen, what would be wrong in coveting that as an indictment for your life and mine? You know, if, 
You know, these, these alumni from Andrews University, in fact, I don't even know where they go to school, but you know, wherever they are, wherever she is, wherever he goes, I feel totally accepted. I don't feel like I'm a, like, like I'm a, a uh, what does it say when you say an extra thumb? An extra thumb. I don't feel like I'm an extra thumb, a fifth wheel. I don't feel like I'm a, I don't feel like I don't belong. When you think of the, of the, of the way Christ lived out the love of God, prostitutes and tax collectors, King James says publicans. Of course, that's not Republicans, but these sinners came to Jesus. They came to him because there was something in the way Jesus loved people, ladies and gentlemen. There was something in the way he treated people. Non-judgmentally, I guess. I guess they didn't feel like they had to get out of his presence whenever he was around. I guess there was something about Jesus that said, you know, I don't, you don't know, a, you don't know diddly squat about God, but I know God. And if you will come to let me know you and if you will come to know me, I can show you what God is really like. Let me love you in the name of God. And they came to him by the droves. They came to Jesus. Loving was his strategy. You know what? This, this is postmodern. This is post-Christian. This is the strategy to reach pagans. Because just like the Galileans and Capernaum, postmoderns today are hungry for community. They want somebody to simply love them and accept them for who they are. And by the way, postmoderns have told us in, in, in research literature that they will not believe until they first belong. They said, if you will help, if you will let me feel I belong, then one day I'll think with you about believing. It's a very reversal, by the way, of our 20th century style of evangelism. That's why we need some institution to begin experimenting, because in the 20th century we said, you have to believe before we let you belong. It's a whole new world. If we say that to the third millennium, they'll say, adios. I mean, you, got, you, you all have a problem anyway. We, read it in the New York Times. We know, forget you. But Jesus moved into pagan Galilee. And before he ever preached to them, he mingled among them. Ellen White wrote it. He mingled among them as one who sought their good. By this, Jesus said, the whole world will know that you are my people if you have love for one another. Only the love of God can penetrate our culture. I want to end with this sentence. I found it in that classic Arthur F. Holmes acclaimed book, The Idea of a Christian College. Take a look at this sentence. Wow. God's grace affects a culture through the cultural penetration of those His grace redeems. Isn't that good? Did you get that? God's grace will affect our postmodern culture through the cultural penetration of those who have been redeemed by His grace. I've got to ask you, whatever class you are, whoever you are, and I'm asking myself, are, are you, am I, have we been redeemed by the grace of God ourselves first? I mean, there's no point in going to a, going to a world that's postmodern and post-Christian if the redeeming grace of God has not been experienced in our own hearts and lives. Come on. Are you, have you been redeemed by the grace of God? That was the mission of Christ. That was the passion of Calvary. In fact, you want to sum up the purpose for that center cross. It's here in verse 17. Jesus' message to a pagan secular world. Turn from your sins and turn to God because the kingdom of heaven is near.
And the kingdom of heaven was never nearer than when the nailed open, outstretched fingers of Jesus pointed outward to the world God was dying to save. It is not coincidental that if you'll just at the end of church step through the doors right there, walk 30 paces out into the university mall, and you gaze up into the bronzed face of John Nevins Andrews, you will see for yourself his fingers, just like the fingers of our Lord, also point outward to the dark, away from where the light is better. They point out to a world that God has been dying to save. It is the pagan world, the secular world that Jesus and Andrews and you and me have been called, commissioned to save. I want to end with a story. Because, see, first you must yourself be saved, redeemed by God's grace. I want to end with a story that I have never told here at Pioneer. I've shared this story in some other places I have preached along the way. But I think the time now, sufficient time has passed, and I can tell the story here. A few years ago, my secretary, Glenn Escaping, called, ring, rang in on the, um, the intercom. She said, Dwight, there's a woman on the phone. I don't know her name. I don't recognize her voice. Do you want to talk to her? I said, sure. So, Patch the call through. And so when I picked up the phone, just the same. I didn't know her name. I didn't recognize her voice. And she said, Pastor, we, you, actually, you don't know me. She said, I've been listening on the radio to this church at Andrews University. And I've been hearing what you people have been talking about. And she said, you know, about this God who is not somebody to be afraid of, but someone to be a friend of. And I was wondering, Pastor, having heard all of this on the radio, I am wondering if you will help me. And I know in, as soon as she says, I'm wondering if you will help me, I know what she's going to ask for. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt she is going to ask me for money. You watch. And I'm ashamed to tell you, admit to you, that as soon as she said, I'm calling you because I need some help, I began to say, look, where's the Salvation Army's in Benton Harbor? What's the name of that other community? Our Dorcas is only open on Tuesday, but where, where else could we send her? And so I'm ready when she goes on, I need some money. But I praise God, the Holy Spirit picked up one of those invisible two-by-fours and whacked me aside the face and the head and said, boy, just listen. She said, I need some money. She said, actually, I could get some money. I have $1,000 over in Chicago waiting for me right now. But as I've listened to the church at Andrews University on the radio, and I've heard this God that you are talking about, it has occurred to me that God, this God would not want me to go over and get that $1,000. And so, can you help me? And then the story emerges in just a few breaths. This poor young mother with children, unable to, su to sustain her little family, has finally had to resort to what they call the oldest profession in the world. And over in the sooted and sullied doorways of the Windy City, this woman has plied her arts, getting just enough money to keep food on the table. And now she says, I can't go back. Not if what you're saying is true. Can you help me? I said, oh, boy, of course. So I made arrangements with her. I said, come in here. There'll be an envelope in the treasurer's office. You pick it up. Nobody, you just come in. I never saw her. She came in. She got the envelope. I found out later, yep, the envelope's gone. Good. She got the money. Some weeks went by. I don't know, months. I, I don't know how long went by. 
One day, one, uh, one Sabbath at the end of the service, I'm standing at the back door, just shaking hands and smiling and greeting. When a rather attractive woman comes through line and she says, Hi, remember me? I said, No. She said, and then she gave me her name. I said, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just not, not, not recalling. She said, And then she said a few sentences from the conversation. I said, Oh. I said, Yes, I remember you. She says, well, you know what? Just a few weeks ago, my children and I have begun to worship here in this church. I said, oh, that's wonderful. Are you finding everything? Yeah, yeah. I said, listen, you just stay right here. Whatever you need, you let us know. This congregation never knew on that Sabbath when this woman comes dripping up out of that baptistry, her face radiant. They never knew her story. But I'm looking into that face and I'm thinking to myself, it is absolutely true. When a woman is in Christ, she becomes a new creation. And old things are passed away. And behold, hallelujah, all things are become new. That woman went on to head up one of our ministries in this congregation, unbeknownst to anybody. The news really is that good, is it not? Can't you just come to Jesus the way you are? I mean, isn't that what we can tell the world? You don't have to clean your act up. You don't have to change your life. You can come to Him just as you are. And if you are in Christ, the old will be gone. God will just whoosh, you wash it away and you can start over. With news that good, ladies and gentlemen, it first has to be good news in my heart before it will ever be good news in my world. And so... Today, like I said earlier, I want to end our service with an opportunity for somebody here, I don't know who, for somebody here who knows he needs to begin a new chapter with Jesus. For, for someone here, she knows she, she longs to bury that story forever and ever. I want to give an invitation today for you to come to Jesus. It's as simple as coming to Him. And in coming to Him, receive the redeeming grace that can make you a shining light wherever you live. And so let's do this. Let's just all stand where we're seated. Shall we stand and make it a little bit easier? I'm not going to look a hymn up, but there's an old hymn you know. Uh, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. Free to all a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. For this last moment in worship, I'd like to invite you, if you're in the back of the balcony, you're in the choir, you're an alumnus here, you're just a stranger who happened to be here, it doesn't matter to me who you are. If you want to begin a new chapter and, and you sense Jesus calling you to come to Him afresh today, we're going to sing just the first stanza of this hymn and during that singing, if you want to come forward, I want to pray with you. Nobody knows the story. We don't have to know the story, but we can share the prayer. And so, would you, if you're standing in the back or even in the balcony, come forward as we sing about the redeeming love of Calvary that washes us clean and starts us over. God bless you. Anybody else? I'm not going to sing another stanza again. Maybe the chorus one more time, but... You know, that's, that, that is the mission of Jesus Christ, to tell the truth about the Father, about a God whose arms are always outstretched. 
in the passionate hope we will turn to him again. You know, maybe you grew up with him. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe, maybe you went to this school. But something along the way has come into your life and you and Jesus have, I don't know, you, you just, you've been on separate journeys. But you happen to come back or you happen to be here today and there's, there's a sense deep inside of you that today would be a good day for you to begin a new chapter with a Master. Never come to Jesus before. You need to come back to Jesus. I want, I want to give you this opportunity. There's nothing in this. You're not coming to the church. This is not a set of beliefs that you're going to embrace today. But if the Savior is standing before your heart and He's saying, you know what? As I have treated all those in those stories, I treat you. You come. And let me be the saving presence and friendship in your life for the journey ahead. So, oh, do I, I'm just going to make that decision in the quiet of my heart and I'll, I'll, I'll go home. And it's true, you can and you may. But you and I both know we make those decisions. We make a lot of them over and over and over in our hearts and we never really follow through. Sometimes just, you know, Jesus said, He who confesses me before others, I confess before the Father. There's something in a public confession. And so, well, we can't see you. You, you and Jesus in this moment. If your heart is struggling right now, I really wish for you the salvation of our Lord and Savior. Why not today? It's perfect. Never be this simple. Please. Let's sing that chorus. We're going to sing the chorus one more time. In the cross, in the cross. And if He's speaking to your heart, I, I wish you would. Come to Him. How about the rest of us? You want to be a, a contagious picture of God's love in your community? You want to join me just raising a hand and saying, Oh, Christ, please shine your light out of me. Shine into the darkness. The light of our Father's love. Oh, God, one lingering moment. A world to reach. Our progenitor, the story of his life, it's dusty with age. And yet, could it be, Holy Father, that the very example of our Lord Jesus Christ is calling us to come full circle once again to a culture just like the culture He came to save? Oh, Father, do whatever it takes, but we raise our hands to simply say, please use us with the contagious love of, of the Savior. To embrace people, to accept them for who they are, and to simply love them back to You. We've got a whole nation waiting for us. Dear Father, please, shine the light through us into where it is dark. And then, oh God, thank you for these who in their own quiet way have responded to your invitation. Take that decision. Seal it. Let that man, let that woman, let that young adult, let all go home today with a new song, a, a fresh hope, a faith that dares to believe. May they hear the words of Jesus, my daughter, my son. According to your faith, it has been done unto you. You are clean. You are a new creation with me. Now with you, dear Father, let us walk until that day when the homecoming shall indeed be coming home and all of us together shall be there by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let all the people say,
Amen.